Happy New Year to you. You've made it. You made it to 2012. I don't know if you doubted ever, but you did. According to uh, some people, this is the last year. The History Channel told us uh, over several shows that this is the last year to ever be. And um, interesting, because that's the future, and I was sharing the first of us, I'm looking for the future channel still. Haven't found that one. Some people would say, well, the history is the best indicator of the future. Touche. You got it. You're right. Welcome. We're glad that you're here in 2012. And if this is your first time here, thanks for, uh, thanks for taking a risk by, by coming here. We hope that you feel welcome. We hope that you feel accepted. And if you've made a, a resolution to go to church, maybe come back to church, I hope that, and I'll pray, I'll commit to praying that you stick with it. Because I think that if you uh, continue to come here, you'll find a family here. And people that will love you as you are, but love you enough to tell you about Jesus who will change you in conformity to his perfect will and what he wants you to become. And uh, we hope that you feel welcome here. And, and if this is your first time here, if you haven't yet, please take time to fill the connection card that you can find attached uh, to, your, to your bulletin. Fill that out. The reason why I'm going to do that is because we want to have a, a knowledge that you're here. It's easy to come into this place with hundreds of people. When we miss you, we don't want to be missed. So we want you to take that a filled out connection card and give it to the connections kiosk where we have a gift for you. It's just our way of saying thank you for coming here. And we have people that want to follow up with you just to say hello and thank you and answer any questions you may have. And we, we really would love for you to fill that out today. You can drop it off in the offering box if you want, or take it out to the Connection kiosk for that gift. Um, today is a unique day because it's what we like to call in the office a standalone message. We've just finished a great series called Consumed, and as Jad was sharing with us about um, being consumed with Christ is what we wanted to, to do during the Christmas season, but forevermore. And that's, that's the purpose of our church, really, is to connect people to Jesus for life change. So we make a big deal about Jesus every week, and we teach from God's Word every week, and we seek to worship Him collectively uh, through song and through prayer every week as the Lord enables. And uh, next week begins a new series called Grace Stories, and you're not going to miss it. So make sure you bring uh, your friends that don't have a church to be, that are not a part of. Um, you can grab these, these little cards. You can find them out in the foyer. These are invite cards. On the front, it just talks about the new series that we're doing, Grace Stories. And on the back side is just information on how to get here to the theater. Um, but feel free to use these as a, as a form of invitation. Um, invite your friends that aren't a part of a church and uh, help them come here and, and uh, experience the love that we've found in Jesus Christ. And um, next week's going to be great. Scott's got a message from the Lord, I believe, that will really be encouraging and challenging to you and uh, all that listen to it and consider what would it look like to be overcome by God's grace and to live differently in light of his grace. So don't forget to take these uh, invite cards with you. So knowing that next week's a new series and last week, we, uh, two weeks ago, we uh, really were concluding uh, the Consume series today is interesting. These are tough messages because uh, you don't have any trajectory. You don't know where you're going. And so uh, a few months ago, Scott asked me to preach. In fact, when he asked me to preach, I was in, in Israel. I was at a seminary class in Israel with Moody Theological Seminary. My dad was a pastor in Michigan, and uh, my brother, who's a pastor in Michigan, uh, we all went together with several other people. And I thought, okay, Scott's asked me to preach. I'm sure the message is going to come when I'm in Israel. Why wouldn't it? I don't know if you know much about Israel, but the whole country itself can fit inside Lake Michigan, for those of you that are from the Midwest. And uh, the first four days or so, we were uh, just outside of Nazareth, the Megiddo Valley. Maybe you've heard of Nazareth before. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth, we were taught, although the Savior came from Nazareth. He's pretty good. And uh, we were in the Armageddon Valley for a while, and I thought, oh, this is the same place that you're going to see the Lord return. A sword comes out of his mouth, and he's going to make all things right. But the message didn't come to me there. And I said, Lord, where's the message going to come from? Where's the verse that's going to be in my heart? And as we seek to shepherd the people of Selbridge, where's that message going to come from? Well, I thought, well, maybe when we get to Jerusalem. When we were in Jerusalem, we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I was awaiting this place. I knew it was going to rock my soul. This is the same place that Jesus prayed, and his, his followers abandoned him. 
right before he goes to the cross. That's where he was wrongly arrested. Then taken to Caiaphas' house, we went there. They were loaded, where Jesus was lowered into a pit and mistreated. And we read Psalm 88. They said, Lord, is this the verse for us? Is this the scripture for us, for the standalone message? Nope. And then we went to the place of Golgotha, two places, because they're not competent where they are. One in this really enshrined place called the, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Was this the place, Lord? No. Went to another place. It was amazing. We had a, uh, a Scottish person that's from Australia hosting us at a British-owned uh, place in Jerusalem where they think Christ was uh, buried and uh, crucified and buried and rose again. And he shared the gospel straight up with us. It was awesome. It was the most blatant form of the gospel we heard while we were there. And I thought, this has got it. And that wasn't where it was. I just wanted something to resonate with my heart. And Lord, would you use your word to change my heart so that I can have a word for the people? And I thought I'd come back and tell Scott, listen, I've got nothing. And uh, until a couple weeks ago. So I'm just going to share a passage with you that came upon my heart and my life again uh, while my family was facing some intense pressure. And I hope that's a passage of a scripture that will encourage you for 2012. Because what does 2012 look like for us? What hope can we have? What was 2011 like for you? Maybe 2011 was the best ever, it can never be topped, or maybe it was the worst ever, and you're thinking anything can top it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to turn to John chapter 16, but before we pull a verse up there, it's going to be a one-verse message. I'm going to show the context with you. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 16, I'll tell you what verse in a second. Here's what's happening in this passage. Starting in John chapter 13, Jesus is celebrating the Passover with his followers, the disciples. It's in this passage that we read that Jesus turns some things upside down. The original Passover celebration uh, would use the wine to celebrate um, God's joy, the joy that comes in from knowing the Lord. And you'd use the bread and it would celebrate God's provision. But Jesus is turning all this upside down. He says the wine that represents his blood, the new covenant in his blood, the bread represents his body that will be broken for people. And he's just kind of un, uh, unraveling the story before his followers. He's basically sharing that his mission is to seek and save the lost. His mission is to come and be a ransom for many. He's telling them all that the Father has told them to do. And now he goes from serving this meal. He's washed their feet like a servant would because the greatest serve all. And Jesus was the greatest. He was the servant of all. Then he begins sharing more and more details with them about what's to happen. And so that's John chapter 13, 14, and 15. He promises the Holy Spirit to them will come to them sometime. They don't understand that. He tells them he's going to leave them. They don't quite grasp that. He talks about being a, a people that abide in him and his love, and you do that by obeying him. Jesus says to love him means to obey him, not just like what he did for you. And then we come to our text in chapter 16, and Jesus is kind of repeating some of the same things he's been saying in some tough words. And then the disciples, in response to this, say, we finally understand. We have no more questions for you. We understand it all. And Jesus says back, do you understand? Because in a little while, you will all go astray. You all leave me. And then he comforts himself in a sense by saying, but my father won't leave me. And then he shares our verse. And I don't know at first glance it will be too encouraging, but I've been praying that the Lord would use it to bless your soul. So let's look at our scripture, chapter 16, verse 33. And what we're going to do is just go little phrase by phrase and kind of break it apart together and see what the Lord has for us this morning. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we come before your word right now, and we ask that you would use it to change our hearts. They would use it to enrich us and embolden us. I pray for anyone here this morning that is um, not sure about you, who is not sure about church world and all this stuff. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just give them comfort and peace today, that they would leave knowing you. Lord, I pray for those that have trusted in you, that believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to you, Father, but through him. Lord, I pray that today would be a day of peace and joy and comfort. Lord, we open your word, we open our hearts to your word so that you would do the work that you do, like a handyman, Lord, taking tools to our hearts so that you would change the trajectory of our lives as a result of having an encounter with you this morning. Change us, Lord, be our teacher this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.
Look at verse 33. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Stop. What are the things that he's been telling them? We need to know the context, and it's what I've been sharing with you. Jesus had just recently shared with them twice in this last chapter that he's leaving them and going to the Father. Now imagine that. You've left your fisherman job, you've left your tax collecting job, you've left the other jobs, you've left family and friends, and people think you're crazy, but you've decided to leave and follow this guy for about three years. This guy who seems to indicate by his power and by his proclamation that he's the Messiah. However, he's not overthrowing any governments that you've seen yet. And he's telling you that he's leaving you. Now, when they left to follow Jesus, what do you think they had in their minds? That they would follow Jesus forevermore, I'm sure. This is it. It's a big, they considered the cost of discipleship, they went and followed Jesus. But now Jesus is saying he's leaving them. Twice he says it. In chapter 16, he says it in verse 5 and in verse 17. He told them that when he does leave, that he'll send his Holy Spirit. And these guys couldn't have comprehended that. That his Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, will lead them and comfort them and guide them. And so, Jesus has been telling them tough stuff. And what is our verse? What does he conclude with? I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Where's the peace in that? These are hard things. These aren't exciting things. He's already shared with them the the gruesome path he's taken. He's said to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be persecuted. It's going to be really rough. Where's the peace? Where's the peace in this? Where's the peace in all the things that he's told them? I don't know if uh, you've been... uh, experiencing much trouble as of late, but several months ago, considering peace that information is supposed to give, several months ago I was facing a surgery. And this surgery is a gum transplant. Anyone ever had that before? No? Okay. (laughs) And I went to the dentist, and the dentist said that my gums were receding on both sides of my uh, upper jaw here. I've never had a cavity before. I've never had a shot in my mouth. So I considered, you know, this is probably not that bad. They'll probably just do something and glue it on nicely. And so I left the dentist, and I'm always at the edge of the dentist anyway, and if there's any dentists here, I hope the Lord blesses you richly because you are despised people. <laughs> I dig my fingers so deep into the chair they have to replace I know it. I'm bending metal in there out of anxiety. And um, I can't even handle, like, just new toothbrushes. I'm just too sensitive. And then I went back to the office after my appointment that morning and went to the computer in my office. I shut the door behind me and looked up what the gum procedure is and looked up, um, the first thing I went to is YouTube, which I found a lot of clips for my surgery and I began an overwhelming feeling of trouble came up through my heart and my soul and my stomach came into my mouth. And uh, it, was, it was bad. And then I went to the web and I typed in the procedure and the first website I found was called, in part in the, uh, it was called The Procedure from Hell. And I read the whole thing which is a mistake, and I began to weep. <laughs> I had a lunch that day with one of our community group leaders, my friend Mike, and he could tell that my uh, uh, face, my, uh, I was a little downcast because um, I wear who I am on my face. And he said, what's wrong? I told him my, my dentist appointment and the upcoming procedure. And he said he's had that done multiple times across both the top and the bottom of his mouth. I said, tell me about it. He said, I will not. <laughs> so... I ate my chicken fingers as if it was my last meal. And uh, What it is, is they take a needle and they put it on the roof of your mouth and numb the whole cavity of your mouth and they take a swatch out of the gum and uh, the roof of your palate and then sew it onto the side. And Mike said that the needle's basically falling on a spike. It's the worst pain he ever felt. And he's like a real man. So then what does that m- mean for me? And uh, I went and read everything I could about the procedure. Every fact I could read. I actually had people, people from the, this lady was so nice that was doing the procedure for me. She had people call me to try to comfort me with the information on how it went for them. But I need to tell you this. The facts did not bring comfort for me. Knowing all the procedures did not bring peace. 
I'm sure the same can be said of any difficult tragedy that's before you or any big change. I'm not a big person with change. It doesn't bring peace to my soul. And what does our text say? I've told you all these things, these things about leaving you, the things about uh, what I'm going to be going to into Jerusalem. I've told you all these things so that you may have peace. But that's not what it says, does it? It doesn't say, I've told you these things so you can have peace. What does the text say? Because words are important. Let's read it again. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. See, Jesus talks about a different kind of peace. If you look up peace in the dictionary or try to find common uh, definitions, you'll find that many definitions of peace talk about freedom from something, freedom from agitation or fear, terror, anger, anxiety, freedom from war or with a foreign nation, freedom from internal uh, commotion or civil war, freedom from private quarrels, suits, or disturbance. And then secondary and third of the Larry, if that's a word, are expressions of like inner peace and harmony, tranquility. But Jesus is speaking of a peace that is different than what the world defines or gives because he's told them all this tough stuff and he says, I'm telling you these things so that in me you may have peace. This is why he says in the same talk in John chapter 14, verse 27, peace I live with you, my, I leave with you, my peace I give you. Do not, I do not give it to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. See, this is a peace that is not predicated upon circumstances, and this peace doesn't and won't come to these disciples in these moments from simply knowing the facts of what is to come. They come, and the peace comes from knowing Jesus. And that's why he says, in me. Did you catch that? I told you these things, these difficult things, so that in me you may have peace. Peace. It doesn't say, I told you these things so that you may have peace. He says, in me. See, knowing Jesus brings, knowing Jesus personally brings peace. And that is why the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, that God declares like with a gavel that you are justified before him, having been justified by our faith in Jesus Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, a few times, if you read the chapter this week, you'll read things like, um, that for he himself, that is Christ, is our peace. Isn't that interesting? I told you these things, and I look at the things that Jesus said, and I put my life in that, I think this is not very peaceful. Jesus, you're not, you're, you might not be that good of a teacher, you're not making sense. But words are important. He says, I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. And when the kind of peace I give you is not the kind of peace the world gives, or the kind that Webster is going to define it as. I am your peace, is what he's saying. Who could use this kind of peace? It's found in Jesus, even in the midst of the storms of bad news or life's troubles, and that's why he connects the next phrase with his statement about finding peace in him. Look at just the next phrase, chapter 16, verse 33, part B, we'll call it. I told you these things that are to come so that in me you may have peace. Look at this peaceful statement, sarcastic. In this world you will have trouble. Okay, Wait, I thought we were talking about peace. When I think about Jesus, and I think about the kind of Jesus that I would like to follow, it's the one that says, there is no troubles. When you trust in me, all your problems will be gone away. I'm going to prepare a mansion for you. It's bigger than your friend's mansions. <laughs> You'll be able to eat chocolate cake, and no one will know the difference. No one will be able to see the difference in your body. All your problems will go away. You'll never see sickness again. Your pockets will be full of coins that came from the mountains of, I don't know, something flowing and poetic. That's the Jesus that I want. And that's the Jesus that many make up. But guess what? That's not the Jesus of the Bible. 
So now we're in trouble because Southbridge, we want to preach from the Bible, and the Jesus that's found in the Bible says this, and here's a promise. Does anyone claim this one? You know, Jesus comforts us with this. In this life, you will have trouble. Great prophecy. So you're saying things to us so that we may have peace in you, and then you promise us that we're going to have trouble. Let's ask this question, since we're disciples of God's word and of Jesus Christ himself. What kind of trouble did those literal disciples know of and experience? Well, Jesus said things like this in this same talk. Remember this, that if the world hates you, it hated me first. Now that's a problem because if you want to be a follower of Jesus, plus you have to be liked by everybody, it's going to be really tough. Because <laughs> living for Jesus and Jesus' style is not popular. And if we want to make up a Jesus of our own understanding, then it's not Jesus at all and there's no power with that. In fact, Jesus says some really tough stuff to them already in this talk in chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. Let's pull that up together and just look at it for a second. We're wondering about the question, what kind of trouble would these disciples face? Here's what Jesus says to them about them. They, meaning the religious leaders and the people around them and their spheres of influence, will put you out of the synagogue, meaning you won't be allowed to go to local church anymore. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. Do you know what he just did? He just... He just told them they're going to die. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this life you will have trouble. And don't forget, I just told you you're all going to die. The people that kill you are going to think they're doing it as a service to God. We have biblical evidence of people doing that. A guy named Saul was around in a crowd that would put people out or persecute Christians and see them put in prison or even worse. History and tradition and scripture tells us that many of the people, uh, Jesus' disciples did die. In fact, the guy writing this book, his story is that people tried to boil him in oil. It didn't take. Think about that. It didn't work. And then he died in exile. And that's why we have the book of Revelation. That's where John received the revelation from God of the things to come. And they said in response to him, hey, we understand all things. They didn't get it, did they? I've told you these things, even about your own death, so that in me you, have, you may have peace. In this life you will have trouble. What kind of trouble do you have? When I say that to you, when I ask you that question, does something come to your mind right away? See, this doesn't sound very much like the Jesus I want to hear from, but this is the Jesus of Scripture, and he's prophesying about trouble. The truth is that trouble and suffering come upon everyone, doesn't it? And sometimes we bring it on ourselves, and sometimes it's brought upon us by others. Sometimes we see the reasons, and sometimes we don't. Because of the sin in the world and the suffering, the suffering affects everyone, doesn't it? Both young and old. What kind of trouble have you faced in 2011? And you're just hoping unto the Lord that you won't see it again in 2012. Sickness, relationship trouble, loneliness, do you have yours in your mind right away, I'm sure? Your children are facing problems, your children are causing problems. Loneliness, doubt, despair. What about even in our hearts? I mean, a lot of times we talk about circumstantial problems on the outside, but I'm the kind of person, I get a lot of problems inside. Anyone relate to that or am I the only one? The trouble of our minds, wondering, doubting, unbelief, depression, discouragement, questions. What do you anticipate 2012 being like? Jesus is saying this, in this life you will have trouble. So let me tell you where this passage came from for me. I shared with you that a few weeks ago we had a lot of pressure in our home. The pressure ultimately began in the fall where after our lead pastor, Scott Lear, had um, our, his friend, Tony Morita, come in and speak about uh, a theology of adoption. He wrote a book called Orphanology. You should add it to your library. It's based on the book of Galatians, I believe. 
And my wife is a social worker. She um, does home studies for people that are doing adoption and foster care. And I knew marrying her over 10 years ago that this was a part of her plan for our lives, that adoption and foster care would be. And uh, I am one of two in my family. My wife is one of five kids, and I never saw that we'd have more than two. And we have four biological children. But after Tony was here and just the working with her, I could not refute the gospel call in our lives for adoption. So it's mostly Scott's fault for bringing his friend. (laughs) So there's already tension there. So after that I, time, I went to Amanda and said, man, I'm ready. I want to make our willingness known to someone. Now, Amanda works with one of our local initiatives, ministries called Amazing Grace Adoptions. We can't work with them because it's a conflict of interest. So she went and researched another agency that might be a fit for our star and wiring. We wanted to be with a Christian agency. We made our willingness known. And when you make your willingness known, you have to do some initial paperwork, and then you have to do a lot of paperwork, and now we're still doing paperwork. More so that you sign your name more times than when you bought a house. Over and over again, signing, signing. You're not even reading. You're just saying, yeah, I'll do it. I'll go to jail if I don't know what I'm reading, writing. And then uh, just before we went on a vacation in the beginning of October as a family, the agency got in touch with us and said, uh, there's an opportunity we want you to consider. Now, we didn't pick a country, the domestic we should do. Amanda gets pictures of kids from our own city and our own area over and over again about um, kids that need homes. But in my heart, I felt like, Lord, would you be pleased if we adopted someone from a country where the gospel is not prevalent? And we were thinking about maybe a, a little girl. Girls, when they um, track out of orphanages, when they grow out of orphanages, many times they turn to um, prostitution. Boys uh, turn to drug, drugs, and they usually both end up dead quickly. And so I just, my heart kind of went toward uh, the other hemisphere and thought about trying to be a part of the gospel call that way. And so that's all we basically told our agency were open. We thought we'd be getting a goal with a guy from the agency got in touch with us and said, listen, we want you to consider a baby boy from Russia. We didn't even consider Russia because Russia had some new rules coming into place. And a lot of people had gone through Russia with looking at less popular countries. We want you to consider this boy from Russia. He's hearing paired, 12 months old. He's in a military-based orphanage in north, northwest Russia in the White Sea. My wife sends it to me. I'm in the office the day before we go on vacation. And she says, we need to make a decision right now. That's that question is interesting because it's like saying this. Do you want to say yes to the gospel? No, yes. We have to say yes, right? Because we made our willingness known and this came to us. And I asked the Lord, Lord, please don't put us in a position to have to choose a child amongst children. I don't have the disposition to do that, that or the heart to do that. I'm not maybe mature enough to do that yet. And so they brought one to us because we made our willingness known and we said yes. And now we're in. And the pressure in our family was, you could feel it. See, we talk about troubles, and we have troubles on the outside, but the scriptures say that a lot of our troubles are also facing um, the principalities of this air, this spiritual warfare. I don't know if your heritage taught you much about that, but the scriptures say that most of our battles are spiritual battles over waging a war over our hearts for worship, what we're going to worship. Are we going to worship our comfort, different saviors, our made-up Jesus, or Jesus? So in our attempt to worship Jesus, we found a lot of battles. We found that we were like having little scuffle, like uh, fight, like arguments. I don't want to say the word fights because that might be misleading, but like little arguments or misunderstandings or fail to meet expectations. And Amanda started getting headaches, which she never does. I do. Weird things like that since saying yes. And then recently, just a few weeks ago, we completed our home study on a Monday, and the secondary agency that knows of the child contacted us on Monday and said, we want you to finish the adoption or the home study process and the whole dossier by Friday, which is a several-week process that can lead to several-month process depending on how fast other people work. Since Amanda's in this kind of work, she knew what they were asking. And it's kind of like asking Scott to write a commentary on John chapter, uh, 1 John, the whole book, by Tuesday. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Scott puts a lot of work into one message. So what would it be like to have to be accountable for writing a whole commentary on one little book? 
Well, Amanda knew what they were asking her, and she did like 90 hours that week to get it done. And we were meeting deadlines. They also wanted $7,300 by Friday. We didn't have it. We used all our 401k and our savings just to get to the point where we were. The overall cost of adoption for this child was $35,000. And we were facing, the pressure was, and I need to be honest, the trouble in my heart was overwhelming. So I contacted friends and emailed friends that I know care about this kind of endeavor and our friends in our community group and people that I serve with at Southbridge family and said, here's our need. Would you pray for us? Amanda was hammering the work, hammering it. Paperwork everywhere, downtown stuff, uh, notoriety stuff, and you had to go downtown to get special stamps on stuff. And then we were waiting and the very people that told us to hurry up, they were slowing us down. And so if Amanda is usually stable, she is stable, and if I'm somewhere else than that usually, <laughs> and she's here now and, and frantic, where do you think I am? So I was really, um, the facts weren't leading me to peace. And the scripture comes to my mind. I'm asking God to give me a message for January 1st that would benefit the people of Selfridge as we go into this new year. And I needed his peace. What kind of trouble are you facing? See, in my mind, the trouble is this. Our son is hearing paired. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. How will my son know Christ if he can't hear? So then my worries build up and my anxieties build up as if I could save my son. And guess what? I have no promise from God that we'll actually adopt him. Did you know that? We could get there and rush and say, Jason, you're a pastor. We're not into that. You're, you're done. We're, we're waiting on other people right now. They want us to travel there on January 20th. We just found out two days ago. We're waiting on other people to do their work so we can go. And guess what? I don't have any promise from God that they'll get it done. Sometimes in January, it can be 30 below where he's at. I have no control over if he's covered. I have no control if anyone's feeding him or if anyone's abusing him, which is common in orphanages. I can't make him hear, and words is my love language. How will he ever hear? I love our worship team, and I love how Jad plays, and some of my best friends are on our worship team, and will he be able to hear them? Worry, worry, anxiety. I go to celebrate recovery for codependency because I'm not happy unless everyone else is happy. I don't know I had control problems. I've got no control, and this is troubling to me. So this is where this passage comes from, and what does Jesus say? I've told you all these things, so that in me you may have peace. In this life you will have trouble. And he's right, isn't he? Have you ever wondered in the midst of trouble, where is the power of God? Why does it seem that the power of the world sometimes seems uh, so overwhelming? You start doubting, is the world actually stronger than God? Are my pressures actually bigger than the Holy Spirit? See, it's hard for us to understand how God can be loving and all-powerful and still allow his faithful followers or innocent children to suffer or experience trouble. And sometimes, and catch this, sometimes faith requires that we accept what we can't understand because we trust God who is in control. My control issues cause me problems and cause me trouble. Even Jesus himself experienced trouble and suffering Theologian Lewis Burkhoff writes, Jesus' whole life was a life of suffering. He was sinless in association with sinners. He suffered from the repeated assaults from Satan, from the hatred and unbelief of his own people, and from the persecution of enemies. See, believing in and following Jesus does not mean being exempt from tragedy, conflict, poverty, and struggle. And if anyone tells you differently, they're not teaching the Bible. And this is why it's essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble, peace and trouble do not negate one another. And if you're a note taker, write this one thing down. Ready? We are not saved from trouble. We are saved in trouble. 
Because Jesus promises trouble, the big promise that we don't want to claim for our lives. But Jesus says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this life you will have trouble. Think about this. Scott shared with us several weeks ago about three young men that were taken captive out of their own nation and brought into another nation. They were given other names. They would forget who they used to be. And they were told to worship a king, but they wouldn't worship a king. And so the punishment was that to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And they said to him, we will not do it. You can throw us in the furnace. We, may die. We, we, we believe that we will live. But even if we don't, even if God doesn't save us, we will not worship you. They get thrown in the fiery furnace. So they did face trouble. They got thrown in. That's trouble in my mind. But the Lord did save them in trouble. He did. In this life, you will face trouble. This is not a promise that we love to claim. But we are not saved from trouble. It's promised. We are saved in trouble. Jesus said that in him, peace would be found. And that means this. Peace from his life to ours. Peace from his word, his promises, made possible by his deed. And so get this, a significant part of discipleship, discipleship is our our growing in our knowledge and expression of Jesus for the sake of the world around us and for God's glory. And all of us are in process that are following Jesus that have claimed him as our savior. We're all supposed to be making other disciples. I don't know if if you knew that was your job. A significant part of discipleship is about learning how to discover peace when surrounded by various troubles this world brings. And I am not a good example which is humbling since I'm a shepherding pastor at Selfridge Fellowship. See, peace is a byproduct of hanging out with Jesus. That's what's called a fruit of the Spirit, and God will grow it at his pace as we continue to lean in him. And so I'm going through this trouble. I cry out to the Lord while we're facing all this pressure. I'm crying out to the Lord that the Lord would alleviate the pressure my wife feels while we're pursuing this adoption and the children feel and the headaches we have and these little infighting that we have. And this passage just comes to my heart. You're right, Jesus, we are facing trouble. But he doesn't leave, it, leave the teaching at that point. Jesus continues with some heartfelt words. And look at the next little section in John chapter 16, 33. We'll call it part C. I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this life you will have trouble, but take heart. This, this, this phrase right here is the phrase. This is the phrase that's going to change 2012 for some of you. But take heart. I love this expression. It's so pastoral, so caring, so invigorating. He says this. He's moments away from being betrayed by his friend and left alone by his friends and then wrongly arrested, beaten multiple times, a crown of thorns pushed onto his head, whipped wrongly, False trials, terrible judgment, crucified, separation from his father for a time he's, that he's had wholeness with and oneness with since the beginning of beginnings because there was oneness before time with him. And he challenged, he's thinking about them. <laughs> In this life, you will have trouble, but take heart, he says. Jesus says, trouble will come upon you, but take, take heart. This phrase means be encouraged. The Greek verb used here is the same one that Jesus would use when he was with his fellows in the boat on a raging sea. In Mark chapter 6, verse 50, he says, be encouraged, take heart. It literally means have courage. And I need to tell you this, and you probably picked this up already. I don't feel very courageous most times. I don't like getting in trouble. I don't like taking risks. How about you? 
See, I look at my abilities, my strengths, and I see my limitations and my weakness. I look in the mirror and see the flaws. How can I possibly live courageously or be encouraged? How can we take heart? How can, and why can we take heart, I ask myself. Our troubles are so overwhelming, and even the peace that's promised to us seems impossible to achieve if we even try really hard. Jesus says, take heart, have courage. My brother and his wife are in town to celebrate the holidays with us, Christmas with us, and um, she's been battling cancer, I've shared with you in the past, for over five years. She has non-Hoskins lymphoma, she's 28 years old. Josh and her know each other just after middle school, Josh has never been on a date with anybody else. They've been married uh, just over that time. She got sick nine months into their marriage. She's a nurse. She was a nurse. And um, she's had two bone marrow transplants. She's got graft-versus-host disease from getting those transplants. She's had steroids for that graft-versus disease, which those steroids evade her joints. She's had both hips replaced. She's getting her shoulder replaced this month. And every time she gets a fever, she has to go to the emergency room, which is about once a month, it seems. She had a 103, so right now she's in Duke. She's been there for a couple days. And people say, well, Jesus, you know, he... If you have enough faith in Jesus, you wouldn't have problems. But what does Jesus say? In this life, you will have trouble, right? But take courage. How, how dare you, Jesus, say take courage? Take hope. Take heart. Be bold. Have, have courage. How is this possible? And why can we do it? And Jesus doesn't leave us alone. He gives us this next phrase. See, I've told you these things so that in me you'd have peace. I've told you these tough things so that in me you'll have peace. In this life, you will have trouble. I guarantee it. In fact, many of you will die for my name's sake. And in this world, you'll have trouble. Sickness, loneliness, depression, discouragement. But take heart. <laughs> because I, I have overcome the world. And Jesus is speaking then what will be true in time. Isn't that amazing? That's how confident he is in his father and in the mission that he's on. His mission is one of overcoming for the sake of others, for the glory of God the Father. And what did he overcome? What does the scripture say, loved ones? I've overcome the world. Meaning all its troubles, all its terrible circumstances, and even death. And how did he overcome death if he died? That's a fair question. If you're a skeptic, that's a fair question. I mean, that doesn't seem very overcoming, does it? If you die. He didn't just die. In fact, the scriptures say no one took his life. He gave up his life on his own accord. That's why he says the phrase, into your hands I commit my spirit. He decided, he decided when it was done. I love it. And then, by the power of God, he was raised to life. Death couldn't keep him. He overcame it all. See, he overcame his flesh, his enemies, his accuser, the tempter, Satan, even death. They all gave their best shot, but Jesus can't be stopped. You want to know why? Because Jesus by himself makes an awesome team. Jesus saying, have courage. I have faced your enemy and I have defeated him. He's saying this before the fact. He already knows. I fought in human flesh the same battleground on which you have fought and I have won. And, and what this means is the victory is extended to us when we embrace him in faith, or trust can be a word there. This is so comforting, isn't it? Because, because it does not depend on us and how strong we are and how self-willed we are. And we've made these resolutions, we're going to be so strong, or I've got these political views, and they're really right, and I know how right I am. Peace is not promised to that. Peace is found in him because he has overcome the world. And when you place your faith and confidence in Jesus, you enter into his victory. 
Now, this victory, when people claim the victory, sometimes they think that means I'm just claiming victory. It means I'm not going to have any problems. What does Jesus say in this life you'll have? Okay. So what could the victory mean? It means this. I've overcome that. What can beset me if I have the promise for those who believe in Jesus Christ and express to him that he is the Lord of their life and understand that he died for their sins and took out the punishment upon himself for their behalf, that they've been given this gift, and this gift is called eternal life in Jesus Christ the Lord, so that even when we die, and it's appointed for each person to die once, the scriptures say, that even when we die, we get, we're with Christ. It's a gain. <laughs> See, that's what the person gets to claim when they've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Where would peace come from if someone doesn't know Jesus? Just try real hard in our limited strength? See, this salvation that we preach about at Southbridge and subsequent peace spoken of throughout the Gospels all depend on Jesus having conquered and overcoming the world. If he doesn't overcome the world, if he doesn't rise again, then our faith in him is in vain. But he did. 500 witnesses. His conquest in turn enables his disciples, including any of us that desire to follow Jesus with our lives, to live for and in him and overcome the world by him. So here's my prayer. My prayer has been since the scriptures come alive in my heart. I'm praying for our church that we, that we would have peace in him, in the storm and in our circumstances that we face. And I know we've got trouble in our church. The people that make up our church, there's trouble in their lives. We'd have peace that we'd have courage to face that trouble because we're with him and that we'd have victory. Victory over the sin that so easily besets us. Victory over the walls we put up that hinder us from being in real relationships with other people in our church family. Victory in seeing the kingdom advance so that people that used to, who used to be in darkness are now in the light because they've said yes to Jesus Christ through your witness. <laughs> that's what I'm praying for. And that's the stuff Jesus guarantees. And he guarantees our trouble. But he guarantees a victory for anyone who would follow him. And look at what uh, John, Jesus, one of Jesus' best friends, he writes to these Christians later on so they'd have assurance of their salvation. He writes this in the book called 1 John, chapter 5. And this is um, verses 4 and 5. John writes, For everyone born of God, and this phrase born of God means to be born again. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. Um, it's like a new life when you say yes to Jesus Christ. He invades your heart and he takes over your life. It, you give up control to him. And who's better, who's better fit to run your life, you or Jesus? I go with Jesus every time. And so we, anyone who is born of God or everyone born of God, anyone who has transferred their trust on themselves to the king and queen of life to Jesus Christ as their king, overcomes the world. Jesus didn't say, I've overcome the world and so can you if you try really hard. Just buy this. No, he doesn't say that. I have overcome the world and subsequently you overcome the world when your faith is in me. I told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this life you will have trouble. I guarantee it. But take heart. Take heart. I have overcome the world. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. And John writes so simply and clearly because he wants people to understand. He wants them to know where they stand with Jesus. Look at the next verse. Question and answer. Such an awesome teacher, I think John was, by God's grace. Who is it that overcomes the world? <laughs> it's very love, like teaching elementary, right? Who is it overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. The scriptures say that if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, the Lord of your life, you will be saved. Saved from what? 
Saved from trouble? No. But saved in trouble and then welcomed into eternal dwellings with him. Overcoming the world is the work of God in our lives as we put into practice our faith in Jesus Christ. The means of participating in the victory is our faith, which is given by God. It's a gift from God. So when Christians face trouble or suffering, it gives way to joy. Since peace has taken up residence in those that trust in the Lord. Will you pray with me? Lord, for this day, thank you. And thank you for each person here. We, Lord, believe that everyone's here by your sovereignty, by your plan, that on this first day of 2012, they would be in this place at this time hearing this word, Lord. And we pray, God, that your peace would take up residence in the hearts of each person here. And God, I pray for the people that have attended today, that have come to this gathering, that have not had the peace that you provide, a peace that passes common understanding or definition. Lord, that today would be the day that they say to you, I believe that you are who you say you are, that you died and rose again for my sake. I am a sinner in needing of Savior. Would you please save me? Please give me the peace that you promised those that follow you. Lord, I pray that today will be the day of salvation for many. And Lord, I, I pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, those that have said yes to you, that we are in relationship by being uh, connected to you. God, I ask that this year would be a year where they experience your peace like never before, which might mean, I guess, Lord, that trouble will come their way like never before. But they would grow more and more confident that you are who you say you are and you've done what you said you would do and you will do what you say you're going to do. So Lord, I pray for peace, I pray for courage, and I pray for victory in such a way that all onlookers in our city would see you, that our lives would only be explainable by your presence in our lives. That's what we want. We want you to be known. And Lord, um, we, just, we believe, would you help us with our unbelief? Lord, use us to embolden and encourage one another while it's called today so that we may live for you all the more. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to love you well and to love others in the same way. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.